HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com. With our growing season just around the corner, we're sowing seeds of knowledge and empathy on this week's episode of Meet and Three through four unique stories. I'm always shocked at how aggressive people are with their language. I'll have something like Japanese knotweed and they'll say, you know, these are terrible, they're they're foreigners, they're invasive, and you know, but they're also, you know, they're really healthy if you eat them. We're surrounded by seeds that have already adapted to live with us and they're actually already kind of living in the future because cities are hotter and they're more polluted and they're more fragmented and these are the plants that can deal with that. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us for this hour of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro. On today's show, we travel to Kansas, where the wine industry is growing. We will meet Jeff Solo, owner of Grace Hill Wineries near Wichita, who grew a hobby into producing some of the most popular wines in the Midwest. Then, Linda Skellinger lets us know wine is not just for drinking, as she introduces us to her line, of uncorked wine jellies. And now we turn to our first guest, Patty Held, the president of the Herman Wine Trail in Missouri. Patty, thanks for joining us today on Eat Your Heartland Out. We're excited to have you. Wonderful. I'm so excited. Well, and you are going to be a great guest because um, from our conversations previously, I know that you and your family have an incredibly long history with wine and the wine industry. So 
take a little time and, and take us through your story. How did your family get into the business? So we're in Missouri, Herman, Missouri. And my dad was a, a hog farmer about 20 miles from Herman, Missouri. This is like, you know, before 1965. So, you know, early 1960s. And he had had a, so we came from very humble beginnings. I have to add that. And um, so he had a bad farrowing year and uh, the Missouri uh, extension service was offering uh, farmers free grapevine cuttings if they would diversify. So of course my dad took those, didn't, you know, really know anything about growing grapes, um, but he, he bought books. <laughs> and um, so he grew grapes and um and then he would sell his grapes to uh, to Gold Seal in New York um, for juice production. And uh, around, I'm going to say, 1964 or so, um, there was a gentleman in Herman who had uh, been using the Stonehill Wine Company's cellars for growing mushrooms and that he had started that uh, when prohibition hit and, you know, around the 1930s. So um, to, so to talk a little bit about, you know, Stonehill, I guess yes. at this point. Please do because uh, Stonehill has an incredible backstory, one that I certainly was surprised by. And I think our listeners will be too. So the history of Stonehill, it was established in 18, 18- uh, 47 by German immigrants, of course, that had settled in, in that, the Herman area, um, who actually arrived in Herman via Philadelphia. So, um, they were actually not, uh, farmers, but they realized that, uh, around the, uh, the Missouri river, which is where, you know, they settled, um, that Herman was very rocky and many hillsides. So they found that grapevines grew very well there. So Herman's history is that around um, the turn of the century, uh, there were, oh my gosh, six, over 60 wineries in the region. Wow. And they produced, oh my gosh, I can't even remember the large number of wine, gallons of wine, but um, they, Herman was the, actually Stonehill at that time, was the second largest winery in the country behind a winery in Ohio. So that was, you know, like 1900. Well, I got to stop you right there because I, I don't think a lot of people think of either Missouri or Ohio as big wine producing, you know, uh, areas. I mean, I'm from Ohio and I come from very close to what we refer to as, you know, Ohio wine country on, on Lake Erie's North Coast. But uh, the fact that there's, you know, this is the second oldest winery in the country, um, or at least back in the day, Right. So it, it was the second largest winery in the country around the turn of the century, 1900, not, not oldest, but largest. Um, so, uh, my gosh, it was, it was, uh, Stonehill winery had, uh, Germans of course had built the largest series of underground cellars, uh, and they still are today, um, West of the Mississippi, I believe, so it's a, a it was a series of of six underground cellars that the Germans had built in the hillside of Stone Hill, and today that's that is also where Stone Hill uh, makes their wine and stores and has the uh, stainless steel tanks and barrels, etc. So Stone Hill is truly truly amazing. So 
Um, but the Herman area to have 66 some wineries in, in the region, um, you know, that's what, that's what the Germans did. They made wine, they grew grapes. So when prohibition hit, of course, it was very devastating to this region. And, um, that's, so this gentleman came in and he started, uh, growing, bought the property course and then started growing mushrooms in the underground wine cellars. And um, so then in the early, you know, in the 60s, 1960s, then um, he wanted to get out of the mushroom business and found my dad, who was a grape grower, not far from Herman, 20 miles, and said, I will help you. I think, I think Stonehill should be reopened as a winery and I will help you do that. Well, my, my dad and mom had nothing to lose because, as I said, they had humble beginnings and they didn't have very much. So um, so we moved to Stone Hill, lived on the second floor. Um, there were four little kids. Uh, I have an older brother. I, I was five in 1965 and I had younger brother and a, a baby. Three, my sister was three months old. So we moved and we started cleaning out the wine cellars like one, one cellar at a time from mushrooms. So uh, mushrooms were grown and we were making wine for two years, you know, simultaneously. It, it was uh, so we, so like my dad didn't just move in and buy the property because of course he couldn't. Um, but so it was very successful. So that was the, the first winery to reopen since prohibition. So my parents were basically the pioneers that revitalized the Missouri wine industry in 1965. So uh, that's that's how I uh, grew up working in a in a winery, living in a winery, working in a winery. Um, I was a tour guide at a very young age. I think that's why I love customer service. Um, so that's that's how we began. And that's obviously where you got your spark for the wine industry and for tourism. Uh, and and you've forged your own career uh, in the wine industry in, in the years since you were five years old and since you've been, you know, a tour guide and that sort of thing. Um, give us a, a little bit of, of your personal journey uh, in, uh, in viticulture and in the wine industry. So I, after high school, I went to California State University at Fresno, uh, for an enology degree, uh, also taking quite a few viticulture uh, classes. So enology is the science of winemaking. Viticulture is the science of grape growing. So that was, uh, you know, because that's what I knew. I knew winemaking and grape growing. And um, so after I graduated from college, my dad had a rule. He would not hire us back at the winery until we went and worked for someone else. So I it's a smart worked, rule. I know more families should have that rule. Agreed. <laughs> so I went to work for Taylor and Great Western Wineries in the Finger Lakes in New York mm-hmm. um, as a winemaker. Um, at one point, I was in charge of over one million gallons of wine. And wow. I know I was there for uh, six years. And then, I mean, it was like working for, I mean, it's like going to school all over again because, you know, they made so many different different types of products. And um, so then uh, I was invited back to work for Stonehill because Stonehill was really growing. And um, so I came back, not, not as a winemaker, but uh, to uh, manage this tasting room and uh, sales and uh, uh, 
public relations and events. And um, so then uh, in 2008, I separated ways from Stonehill that happens in family businesses. Sure. And uh, so I started my own uh, consulting company and um, working with wineries, tasting rooms, and really basically anyone who, uh, you know, has a tourism business. And um, so now I have local clients, which are great. And they're, they're not all wineries either. Um, one is a, a, the Herman Worst House, which is a, a sausage producer. And, oh, wow. um, and another one is a, a restaurant and a tavern. And then there's the Herman Wine Trail, which uh, the Herman Wine Trail was started. We started that in 2004. And, uh, and it was designed after many wine trails in New York State, believe it or not, um, that very, po- you know, they were very popular. And, um, and it just made sense that uh, our Herman area wineries, you know, banded together to promote what we do best. And that is you know, share wine and foods with, uh, with our visitors. So right. our, our theme, uh, has, had always been, uh, actually not always, but it took us a while to figure out what people wanted and it, what it was is they wanted a themed event where it was a wine and food pairing. Right. So tell us a little bit about, um, you know, you, the different events you have throughout the year, the type of themes, the type of foods, um, you know, and, and how that's uh, kind of evolved over the years, uh, attracting new visitors into, uh, into Herman and into Missouri. So the Herman Wine Trail, we um, have zeroed in on six events that are, that are very successful. And we designed them at non-traditional, like slower times of the year. So not heavy tourism. Right, not Christmas, right, not President's Day weekend. Right, right, because we have lots of visitors at those times. So in the third weekend of February, actually now it's the third Saturday, um, since COVID, we've had to change our our plan. But um, so the third uh, Saturday of February, we'll have our chocolate wine trail. And sign me up. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It doesn't matter how terrible the weather is. People will still come for chocolate and wine. And so the wineries, they uh, create a, um, a food. It does not have to be a dessert, but something that has chocolate as the main ingredient. And they pair that with one of their wines, very successful. So we've always sold out the chocolate wine trail. So, you know, Typically, normally we would, we would sell 1200 tickets, um, to our chocolate wine trail nor, and normally in the past it had been a two day event and Herman never had 1200 people the third weekend of February ever before. So we increased tourism for Herman for, you know, all the B and B's, the restaurants, shops, et cetera. So then in, uh, May, actually I'll back up. We have, um, a new event that we've added the last couple of years called, uh, the Farmer's Table Wine Trail. And we were approached by uh, Missouri Common Ground. Uh, Common Ground is the uh, the larger group that's, I think, like 11 states, there's a group. But then we were approached, just, of course, by Missouri Group, which is, um, it's basically women in agriculture that uh, are volunteers that promote uh you know, different, different commodities, different right? Commodity groups, you know, beef, pork, dairy, 
um, poultry. It's just just uh, corn, soybeans. It's just a, a wonderful group. And so we have the Farmer's Table Wine Trail where uh, they'll actually provide a spokesperson for that com- commodity group that, that, that each of the wineries have selected to, uh, to, to use as, as a, their main ingredient. And it's, it's just a wonderful event. We've actually, you know, we have a whole new group of visitors uh, because of that event, which is great. How long has that been happening? Um, 2018 was our first Farmer's Table event. So we've had it in eight, 2018, 2019, 2020. We had to cancel, I know. Um, of course, but we're planning, of course, to have one in 2021. So um, we're happy about that. And then uh, May, the first uh, Saturday, we'll have our wild bacon wine trail. Wait, did you did you say bacon? Yes. I know everybody loves bacon. Oh, my gosh. And, and it's featured as the main ingredient in the foods that the wineries create and uh, and pair with their wine and it of course it sells out also the farmer's table of course sells out and um and then we have in july uh the fourth saturday is berries and barbecue so of course that sells out also so it's you know berries that are grown in missouri and uh you know some winery most of them do you know some type of meat whether it's you know beef or pork or chicken just just a wonderful event and uh, then in November, the third Saturday, we'll have our holiday fair wine trail, which uh, the wineries feature holiday foods, um, which are all, you know, fabulous. And then the second uh, Saturday of December, we'll have our Say Cheese wine trail. Um, of course, this year we, we had to cancel that one. Uh, right. That was supposed to have been last weekend, but... Um, anyway, it's just, they're just wonderful because, you know, it's, it's an, an event that, uh, you know, we've created where the wineries have a, uh, a menu and they can visit the wineries in any order that they want to. Is there like a passport type of function where you can, you know, you have a map and, and you can, you know, show where you, where you're going, where you've been, that sort of thing. So- and. We're old school. We actually mail them hard copy tickets and they take that ticket to each of the winery. And there's a spot for each of the wineries that gets punched. And that's how we know, you know, where they've been. And then at the very last stop, they drop their, you know, completed ticket in a jar. And we do a drawing later for uh, a one night stay in Herman uh, and a $30 gift certificate to each of the, of the wineries. So, you know, we, we sell our events out. It, it's, as I said, it's been a challenging year, but, you know, people assure us they'll be back and they, you know, they just love our events. Well, I, I think with good reason. I mean, you have everything from chocolate to, to barbecue, to bacon, to berries uh, and everything in between. And, and uh, you know, I really find the uh, the relationship with the organization that has, uh, you know, led by women in commodities. I mean, what a what a wonderful type of partnership uh, bringing two different sectors of, of uh, you know, business and agriculture together um, in, in this way. I mean, you know, it seems as if uh, the, the Herman Wine Trail is a great example of um, leveraging 
your the, the local resources, the, the local businesses, the local entrepreneurship to be able to attract tourism to an area that maybe wouldn't necessarily, you know, have have had other foot traffic, so to speak. Um, and, and that's what what I find so interesting about this. As I said at the beginning of, of uh, our conversation, not a lot of people think of Missouri as wine country. Not a lot of people think of, you know, Ohio as, as wine country and many of the other places in, in the Midwest. People just automatically assume California and sometimes certainly I think the Finger Lakes in, in upstate New York have definitely, um, you know, have a foothold uh, in um, people associating that region with wine. But this this the culinary tourism is, I, I think, a real draw and, and growing into the 21st century. And, and, you know, you mentioned that you have had a lot of challenges, as many have, uh, throughout uh, the year with COVID. How have you adapted? And, um, you know, what do you see um, as your next steps? What's on the horizon for Missouri and the Midwestern wine industry from where you sit? So I, I can't uh, emphasize enough uh, the importance of uh, your organization's website and keeping that updated um, with if if you have member wineries on in on your website you know if, if you're a wine trail or an association keeping your information updated through you know be, because of the pandemic that we experienced guess where people went they went online um, because. Our welcome center was closed for, gosh, several months. So our 800 number that was printed everywhere wasn't wasn't being answered, of course. And um, and then also, you know, the Herman Weiter, for example, we have an email list um, of our ticket purchasers of people who have attended our events, and that is gold. That was gold this year. Absolutely, I'm because sure. That's how I, you know, stayed in contact and and could update our ticket purchases purchasers about we're, we're postponing, we're canceling, bear with us, we're going to refund your money as soon as the chamber gets open, you know, the office gets open again. And um, that was just just amazing. Um, and, and using that list and, um, and email marketing for our, our wine trail, for example, using that email list, I mean, I still sent an email once a month to our, our subscribers and our open rate is like 33 to 44%. Mm -hmm. And it's because we gave our, our uh, subscribers information they wanted or needed. And during this crazy year, you know, wineries, their hours that they were open or whether they were open at all changed weekly um, or monthly. And, uh, and that was, and people still wanted to get out. Right. You know, they if, if they could in, in Missouri, you know, there was a time where people couldn't. But but when they you know finally could, then people really wanted to get out. And what we experienced experienced on our Herman White Trail was that we saw more uh, weekday traffic than we did uh, on the you know weekends. Of course, we're still busy, but we saw more weekday traffic because visitors wanted to to experience the wineries when it was less crowded. Um, mm -hmm. and, and they could do, you know, social distancing that was, uh, you know, easier to do. And, um, so that, you know, using, utilizing those, our email marketing list and, uh, keeping the website updated and of course, social media. Oh my goodness. Right. Um, you know, making sure that you 
updated, gave updates, you know, constantly because that that's where people went and responding to people. Um, I mean, you know, there's one thing having, having an account, but if you don't answer questions, um, you know, what, what good does it do you? So, so we think, you know, for us, the Herman Wine Trail, you know, as I said, we've adapted our, our plan for 2021. We're uh, having one day events, limiting the ticket sales. And if the weather is, you know, conducive, of course, the wineries will serve their foods outside. Of course, they can't do that in February. Right. But, um, but they did do that. Luckily, this past November, thank goodness, because it was a the weather was beautiful that weekend. So just, you know, being able to, uh, you know, be flexible, be adaptable, and and promote that weekday tourism. Well, I'll tell you, you know, you, you mentioned uh, responding. I'm so thankful that you responded to my email and my <laughs> request to, to interview you. Um, and uh, before I let you go, you know, is there a good website um, or social media handle that you want to share with our audience so they can learn more about the Herman Wine Trail? Please. Yes. So HermanWineTrail.com. And that's Herman with two N's and um, Herman Wine Trail uh, Facebook page. And uh, yeah, and then of course our, our visitherman.com website because Herman has over 90 bed and breakfasts. Those weren't there before there was a wine industry, that's for sure. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason why Herman is a, a tourism destination and it's because of the wine industry. And um, so there's bed and breakfast, there's shops, there's restaurants, uh, some breweries, some distilleries. So it's just a, a great place to to visit. So check out hermanwinetrail.com and then uh, visit herman.com also. Well, I know I certainly will be, and I bet that our listeners are going to want to trek out to the Show Me State so you guys can show us all uh, what you have to offer in Herman and the vicinity. Patty Hell, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me. This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along, a three-day hosted virtual garden festival connecting you with the influencers, tastemakers, and cutting-edge content of today's gardening world. The Great Grow Along will feature 40-plus sessions on topics ranging from houseplants to DIY landscaping. New plant parents and first-time gardeners will gain practical advice and creative inspiration from celebrated garden experts and industry leaders. Costing $29.95, tickets allow attendees to mix and match a wide range of sessions or choose to follow one of the conference's six tracks, which include edible gardening, urban gardening, pollinators and plants, DIY landscaping, houseplants, and dig deeper. The Great Grow Along will take place March 19th through 21st, 2021. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com. Are you longing for a trip to Mexico? Do you want to taste mezcal straight out of a wood-fired clay pot still at a palenque in Puebla? Well, we can't help you with that, but we can offer the next best thing, agave road trip in a box. This set of 10 samples of rare heritage agave spirits will transport your heart with the warmth of liquid Mexico. Get your set at agavefestival.org and then join agave road trip podcast co-host Chava and me, Lou, for an online tasting agavefestival.org is the break you've been looking for or as close as you're going to get.
Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Out. We are now joined by Jeff Solo, owner of Grace Hill Wineries in Kansas. Jeff, thank you for joining us um, and telling us your story about uh, your time in the wine business. Everybody seems to have a, a different sort of path into the business. Everybody that I've talked to, at least particularly in the Midwest, uh, what brought you uh, into the wine business? Well, um, I was kind of brought into it uh, so sort of a family deal for us uh, here at Grace Hill Winery. Uh, my dad uh, was uh, always been kind of a wino. Um, every time, you know, we went uh, on vacations as a kid, uh, you know, when most people are going to beaches, uh, we were going to barrel rooms. Um, and so we, we every every time, you know, we were going somewhere, there was always a wine trip involved. And so I think when he came back to Kansas here, um, I think he kind of missed that uh, a little bit each time when he came home. So I think he was really looking for something um, to kind of bring that culture um, to the Midwest, the kind of wine culture and, and kind of, you know, um, being able to drink something that, you know, grows right there um, in your backyard and really enjoy it in uh, that setting. Um, and so um, he'd always, you know, loved wine. And uh, about 2003, he kind of had a midlife crisis and decided <laughs> he wanted to uh, buy a place in the country. And uh, so we bought an abandoned homestead uh, in 2003 and uh, kind of spent the first year tearing uh, old houses down, you know, uh, burning old barns, uh, just kind of messing around uh, on the land there. And then uh, he always said he had a big project, uh, but never really told us what it was uh, until the spring of 2004. Uh, a bunch of vines showed up on our uh, doorstep and like, oh, OK, I guess this is what we're doing. So we planted our first vines uh, in 2004. Um, and it went really well. Uh, we ended up uh, doing the first ones in an old pasture area um, at the at the winery. So uh, the the cows have been doing their business in the soil there for 50 years and uh, really nutrient rich soil vines shot right up out of the ground. We're like, we're really good at growing grapes. Let's do this <laughs> some more, you know. So uh, we put in uh, the next over the next about five years, uh, we put in Oh, just over an acre uh, every year uh, for the next uh, about four or five years. And then in, uh, we ended up with more grapes than we knew what to do with. Uh, started making a little bit of wine out of them. Um, we were doing it originally, you know, in our kitchen. You, you'd walk into our kitchen uh, in our house in Wichita, Kansas, and it would just smell awful in there. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, uh, we, were, we were very much kind of new to the whole uh, winemaking thing. Um, and so... Um, but we really, uh, we, we went up with more uh, wine than we knew what to do with. So we're like, well, let's try and, you know, start a winery. We got, we did get better at the winemaking as time goes, went on. And we, we thought we were ready to kind of, you know, showcase that uh, to the public. Um, that's uh, when we opened uh, Grace Hill Winery in uh, June of 2008. And we've been kind of doing it ever since. Uh, it's been a super fun family business. You know, I graduated from college in 2008 and I've been working here uh, at the winery pretty much ever since. <laughs> as they say, the rest is history, right? Um, exactly. So when these grapes showed up, you know, back in 03 or whatever it was, 03, 04, what kind of grapes, uh, you know, did your dad decide to plant, at least initially? And, and how how has that diversified uh, over the years? Yeah, um, it's actually it, it's, a lot of the grapes we first put in there um, are a lot of the grapes we still grow today here, actually. We we had gone to, you know, to like the Kansas Grape Growers and Winemakers Association was a great resource for us. Uh, we got on throughout the Midwest um, to kind of see what kind of grapes were grown there. Um, so the ones we started with um, were Saval, Traminette, and Vignol. Um, so Vignol has actually become the state grape of Kansas uh, ever since oh. uh, a couple of years ago. Um, like Traminette's the state grape of Indiana. And I don't think Saval has a state yet, but we make delicious Saval. I should get one soon. Um, and then uh, our reds that we grew um, were Chamberson, uh, Noray, 
and then um, some Cabernet Franc uh, as well. Um, and we still like Chamberson's our biggest planting uh, now. It's it's the red grape of Kansas uh, now, actually. Um, but uh, we have uh, more Chamberson uh, here than uh, we do any other type of grape. It's been uh, really good. And we still have um, a pretty good plantings of Saval and Vignoles, our second uh, biggest planting here. So um, of the six original grapes uh, we plant, oh, we plant some Norton as well. Um, so of the seven original uh, ones we do, we still grow quite a bit of uh, for sure the Norton and uh, the Saval, the Vignol, and the Chamberson. Uh, we, we still grow a little bit of Trimonet, uh, but very little. Um, that one's, uh, it's pretty um, um, sort of receptive to drift. It, 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 and we got we got drifted a couple of years ago, and so uh, it killed off a lot of our Trimonets. We don't have a ton mm. of that one left. But um, really, uh, we, we've added a few grapes uh, since then. We've kind of taken out all of Vinifera. Like we put in the Cab Franc, and we thought it was doing okay. So then we tried, well, let's try some more Vinifera. So we tried, you know, Cab Sauv, we tried Syrah, we tried Zinfandel, we tried Merlot. Um, all those are no longer here. Um, we, uh, they just, they just won't survive, uh, the Kansas right. winter. Well, um, and who, who knew that Kansas grew, grew so many grapes that they had to have not one, but two different types of, of, of official grapes of, of the state. I've definitely learned something new here. Uh, yes. and, and so all these different grapes that, that you've, um, listed off that you grow, uh, for people that are unfamiliar, what does that look like when it tastes into wine or, uh, transforms uh, into wine. You know, are these dry? Are these sweet? Uh, you know, uh, what kind of uh, wines do you make uh, out of these grapes? Sure. Um, so yeah, like uh, we'll start with the Chamberson because, like I said, that one's our biggest planting. Um, Chamberson, it's uh, it's a red grape, um, and we use it for. We make about twenty five different wines here. We probably use it in twelve to fifteen of our wines. We use it in basically everything. Um, How many wines do you make that you have twelve to fifteen? I say we, we make about 20 to 25 different wines. We, um, on our kind of everyday list, we have eight dries and then eight sweets. Um, and then we have our cellar series, which is our, uh, our kind of small batch, um, uh, taste room only, uh, and wine club wines. Um, and those are rotating. So we do a whole bunch of different ones. And usually we just have like four available at a time. So usually when you come to the winery, there's about 20 different wines uh, to try. Wow. Um, but, but like our Chamberson, yeah, like like I said, it, it's kind of a workhorse one. So it's uh, it, it's got big red fruit flavors in it. Um, it's pretty low in tannins, uh, so we can really we can really do a lot with it. You know, we can uh, we can make a, a dry barrel aged wine. Um, it's gonna be a little bit lighter in flavor. I kind of think of it as like uh, kind of right in between like a uh, like a Gamay and uh, a Pinot Noir. So it's gonna be real kind of light bodied but big fruit. Um, and if you age it right. Um, then it can be really give you that nice smoothness um, and uh, really with, with the bright cherry flavor to a little bit of raspberry um, that you get uh, with a nice Pinot Noir. Um, we also use it for sweet wines as well. Um, we can do um, stainless steel aged stuff. So we have like our, um, our, our best-selling wine is called Peckerhead Red. Uh, and it's a sweet red wine. It's got a good looking rooster on the front. I was going to say, doesn't, doesn't this rooster like live, live on the property, right? Yes, exactly. He was our first rooster um, that we ever had uh, at the winery here. When we 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 kind of we get attached to our animals uh, here on the farm, and then uh, we tend to put them on wine labels. So yeah, so Peckerhead was our first rooster we ever had here. He was an awesome rooster. Uh, he'd always greet all the people when they showed up um, at the winery with with a couple uh, cockadoodle doos there, and uh, we always thought he'd look cool on a label. So uh, we put him on a label. Um, we made it. We it's, it's a blend of about four different uh, grapes, but the main one in there um, is Chamberson. Um, and so it's a nice, uh, sweet red wine. It's been our best-selling wine ever since we put it out. 
Um, we can do kind of a semi-suite uh, with the Chamberson as well, like our Dodging Tornadoes. Um, that one's our second best-selling wine. Gee, so. I, I wonder why that's offered in Kansas. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, the story behind that one is um, my parents' wine cellar um, kind of doubled as our storm shelter uh, here in Kansas. So uh, my little brother and I, we were always, uh, you know, we we were trained to grab a corkscrew on the way down to the uh, the wine cellar or the storm shelter, excuse me, in case we were there for a while. <laughs> I'm I'm sure you guys eventually looked forward to finally getting to like actually taste the wine at some point yeah, and, exactly. and, and enjoy it being being around it so much as as a kid. I mean, mm-hmm. it sounds like you have a very extensive operation there, and and I mean, I guess you've been you know in uh, around for since 2008 with you know uh, it seems like in, in real full production. Um, and I, I'm curious to know how you actually started to make, like, how did you learn how to make wine? I mean, obviously there's been this love, you know, now like multi-generational love of wine, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to grow up and make wine. Um, and admittedly you said, you know, your, your kitchen wine was not particularly great. So how, (laughs) and so what happened between the kitchen and today, um, you know, with, with the, the great wines that you serve uh, now? Sure. Um, well, we've kind of, you know, we, we try to take inspiration from wherever we found it, uh, more or less. Um, you know, when when we first, I think one of the things that was also intriguing um, that as we went, you know, from place to place and saw the different uh, wines that were made was, for the most part, they're more or less made the same way. You know, you're, you're growing the grapes uh, in, you know, your region and then uh, you're crushing them, you're pressing them, you're aging them. And there's obviously a whole bunch of science uh, and a whole bunch of different things you have to learn um, to really get good at that. But for the most part, the process is pretty similar. So I think that was something that that made it, you know, maybe not quite as scary to sort of jump into. Um, and then we, we went around uh, different conferences, different associations, you know, bent about every person's ear that we could trying to figure out, you know, uh, what to do and what works. And, you know, we, we've done, we've taken online classes, um, we've taken in-person classes, we've We've uh, talked to every winemaker we could find. We've talked to every expert we can find. Um, and then at, at some point, though, I mean, we're here in Kansas. You know, there's not a – I'm not going to say there's a robust history of uh, wine culture here. Um, so and, – and there's not – a lot of these grapes, you know, have only been grown here for the last 20, 25 years. So there's wow. not necessarily a ton of history um, or really really even like a textbook of what to do. So for the most part, you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, and uh, you, you're kind of – it's kind of trial by fire. So like I said, like when we first started making wines, we, we made some really bad ones. Uh, but those were a lot of, you know, sort of uh, beginner's mistakes uh, and, and things we had to kind of learn. And since then, we, we, we've gotten to uh, – we got pretty quickly, I think, to where our wines um, were very were, – were, were good. Um, we're certainly drinkable, nothing offensive about them. And then I think that the, the real thing we've tried to uh, do now, and really it just comes from experience, just because, you know, you only, for or the winery, you only get one time a year to really get all your grapes in and right. do all your fermentations and really, you know, start to form your wine for what it's going to be. Um, and so really uh, just getting more harvest under our belt and kind of learning what works, what doesn't, you know, when we need to pick these grapes or what are we looking for as far as sweetness level versus acidity, you know, what different kind of yeast do we want to use, what mm-hmm. kind of barrels uh, sort of make different uh, flavors and what goes well with the type of grapes that we're growing here. So it's really, um, we, we tried to learn as much as we could from outside sources, but you got to kind of, you, like, like I said, it's kind of the Wild West. You're kind of a frontiersman here. So you're right. kind of trying to have to figure out uh, as much as you can um, as 
as quickly as you can, more or less, because you are, because that's, that's, like I said, I think you can get to medium pretty quickly, but to keep going up, I would say that the, um, the learning curve is definitely a little steeper, I'm trying to, and the progress is a little slower getting there. Um, and I think that um, our white wines are, um, they're, they're delicious. I put our white wines and our sweet wines up uh, against about anybody in the world. Our red wines were, were still, um, I, I think they, they get better every year, and I think they're, they are very good. Uh, but we're not here in Kansas. Number one, you're you're growing um, Midwest grapes, so you're not going right. to get a lot of tannin. So um, the, the, that's kind of the thing with Midwest grapes is that most of them don't have a ton of tannin, so you're not getting that kind of grip like you would uh, with a Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, so and, and that people kind of equate that with quality. So that's always a battle that we're fighting. Um, and then our growing season is quite long here. So um, I. I, we always have big fights uh, between my dad and I because I always think that um, our wine, our red wines, are a little more acidic than I would like, and he disagrees. But it's just it's that's kind of the fun of it too, you know. There's no like you know sort of singular flavor that we're going. It's it's all gets, There's a lot of science to it, but there's definitely some art as well. So we're we're trying to kind of perfect our art uh, for as, you know as much as we can. It sounds like you know you guys are are definitely. Um, you know, growing into your own and, and uh, coming of age and, and offering a, a fantastic uh, variety. And, and I know, uh, you know, I, I always talk about this with guests because I'm from Ohio and particularly with the wine. Folks have been talking to, you know, in the, in the wine community because I come from a wine part of Ohio. And so we have some of the same kind of challenges with grapes. Um, you know, we have a, a more of a struggle with some of the red wines as well. But, you know, the, the sweeter wines and the white wines are are you know, quite good. So I'm glad that you brought up um, and, and talked about some of the challenges of, of growing grapes in the Midwest and um, kind of what that means uh, in the wine world uh, as you try to bring that from, you know, farm to bottle, so to speak. Um, and, and uh, you know, for us at least, wine and, and wineries in Ohio are a big source of tourism. And and so I'm curious to know whether or not that's been your experience in Kansas. Is that is uh, tourism something that is as part of your business model as well now that, you know, is is the, uh, you know, you have a new rooster or, or somebody else that's greeting visitors uh, <laughs> when they come come out to your property? Yeah, we, uh, tourism, I mean, it, it's kind of, you know, the, the heart of the business here, you know, we're, we're about uh, seven miles off of 135. So we're, we're pretty close to a, a pretty major highway. Um, and we, like we, in our tasting room, we have big maps. And so we have a big map of the U.S. Uh, and then a big uh, international map. And so uh, every time we have people come in from, uh, you know, out of town, um, they can take their pin and they can stick it in the maps there. And so we have, oh, that's awesome. you know, we have, you yeah, know, all, all 50 states multiple times, you know, we have um, every continent except for Antarctica. Uh, I think somebody stuck one in Antarctica, maybe just for fun. Uh, but yeah, we uh, we we get uh, a ton of people from uh, sort of everywhere here, and then we're always trying to encourage more people to get out to the winery um, as, as much as we can. You know, we do we you know in a non-COVID time, we do all sorts of special events. We um, we we will we will do you know we'll do like food and wine pairings. Um, like this last, uh, we pretty much had to stick to um, outdoor stuff sure. um, this year. Like in October, we did uh, our grape stomp. So we, the, the, some of the grapes will, some of the vines will put on a secondary crop of grapes. 
so we'll pick up like the whites in August and then by early um, October, they'll have um, a kind of a secondary growth on there. So uh, we invite all the uh, families out here and they can go through the vineyard. Uh, they pick those extra grapes on there and then uh, we set up a big stomping station so they can all get in the, uh, get in the tubs <laughs> and uh, stomp on some grapes, which is super fun. Do you actually do something with said grapes that have been stomped on? No, unfortunately not. <laughs> I was going to uh, say, we, I, I kind of feel like the health department probably wouldn't be down with that. <laughs> exactly, yeah. No, that would be a different kind of type of uh, barefoot wine there, no. Uh, we, uh, we we pretty much uh, just dump those out uh, afterwards because, yeah, that's, that we're trying to keep the toe jam flavors out the wine as much as possible. <laughs> but I bet people have a blast. Are, oh, are yeah. There, are there other wineries or, or breweries or, or, you know, sort of culinary activities around uh, where, you know, you're located that, you, you know, create more of an atmosphere of, of drawing folks or are you the big draw? We, we're kind of, yeah, we're, we're kind of in a, uh, an entertainment desert uh, here, I would say, um, in, uh, in Whitewater. Um, in, in Wichita, there's, there's quite a few of those things. Um, and we, we've kind of looked into maybe uh, putting like, like a wine bar in town. Like you kind of get like the mm-hmm. sort of the more country aspect of it here at the winery with the, with the vines. And, you know, you can hang out on our patio and you can do like your meat and cheese tray and, and just kind of hang out and enjoy the ambiance. Um, but we right. are kind of... We're, you know, we're in just west of Whitewater, Kansas, which is a town of 1,100 people or so. Um, so there's, there's not a ton of uh, other resources for us um, around here, um, unfortunately. But uh, we'd, we'd love for that to change. Where every time people come out and say, hey, I want to grow my own grapes, we always tell them, yeah, why don't you do it? Do it across the uh, way and start a winery. We, we'd love to have a little trail here because, uh, you know, with the, the nearest winery to us is probably 30 miles away mm-hmm. um, or so. And it, it would doubt that I say that's in downtown Wichita, basically. Um, so we thought about maybe uh, putting like a like a wine bar or something like that uh, in downtown Wichita. It'd be super fun. Um, we're, we're, we, we were I kind of had designs on that uh, earlier this year, but then then there was a pandemic. So we're right. kind of uh, reevaluating everything at the moment. Sure. I, well, I'm sure there's big things on the horizon uh, when the whole world hopefully goes back to normal sooner rather than later. But in the meantime, uh, tell our listeners where they might be able to to find your wine. Sure. Um, you can find our wine. Um, if you're ever in the Wichita area, you can find it at a bunch of liquor stores uh, around uh, the Wichita area. Um, the easiest place to find it is online. Uh, just go to gracehillwinery.com. Um, and then we can ship uh, to about 38 states or so. Um, the the, um, the wine uh, so the, the page is right there on our website. Uh, you can get it uh, shipped right to your doorstep. Fantastic. Well, I know that people are going to be uncorking uh, your wine sometime soon. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today on the show. Well, we're happy to have on the show Linda Skellinger from Uncorked Wine Jelly out in Kansas. Linda, thanks for joining the program. Well, thank you for having me. You have such an interesting story, and I, I just love to talk to people that do something just a little bit different and out of the ordinary, and that's definitely Uncorked Wine Jelly. <laughs> um, but you've been a, a jelly maker pretty much your entire life. Uh, tell us how, do you, how you got started making jelly and then wine jelly specifically. I got started making jelly um, when I was little. My grandma taught me. My parents owned a flower shop in the small town we lived in. And I was the youngest of four kids. The older three kids were always working at the flower shop. And I would get sent to grandma's when they were busy. I know the and, feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And in Kansas, we have um, Sandhill Plum 
sandhill plums, I guess is what it'd be called, that grow wild. And it's a big thing to go out in the pasture on the side of the road and pick those and make jelly every summer. So that's what I did with my grandma. That sounds great. Yeah, that is actually the base for recipe for all of my products is the recipe that she used for her sandhill plum jelly. And a sandhill plum still a big thing? It is still a big thing. So this yes. it's a big thing in Kansas. Is it special to the just Kansas or can you find it other places across uh, the country? I am not really sure. Like I said, they grow wild. Um, they grow in sandy ground. And so I'm not sure. Mm. It is, like I said, a huge thing here. I have lots of requests for it, which I don't make it any longer. But it is really popular at the farmer's markets and such here in Kansas. So interesting. I, I guess I'm going to have to head out to Kansas and try that because <laughs> I've never heard of it, which is why yeah, we do it's this a very, show. Very unusual jelly, and it is really popular. Well, I've learned something new, and I know our listeners have as well. Uh, so, you know, obviously you've been making jelly for a very long time, um, and because, you know, you apprentice with your grandma, as many of us do as we get involved in cooking and baking and, and doing crafts. Um, but what about wine jelly specifically? What brought you to that? Well, interesting enough, I actually do not like wine, <laughs> but... Um, I would love to like wine. I've tried to. I would love to be part of that culture, but I don't. Well, hey, you are part of that culture in your own way. (laughs) I am. I did find a way to get to become a part of it. But I was actually selling Sandhill Plum Jelly at the farmer's market locally here and was going to make jelly that day. And so I was kind of cleaning up. We had had a dinner party the night before, and someone had left a half a bottle of wine And knowing I wasn't going to drink it, I thought, well, I'm just going to dump it down the drain, get things cleaned up here. And literally, as I was holding it over the sink, I thought, wait a minute, what if? And so I put it down and I went and got my jelly recipe out and kind of swapped the ingredients and tried it. And I tasted it. I'm like, this tastes really good. And I thought, I'm not sure if I like it when I don't like wine, if a wine drinker is going to like it or not. So I text my neighbor and I'm like, meet me at the back fence. And I ran over there with it. And she's like, that's actually really amazing. Wow. Well, you never know when good ideas are going to come to you, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of an accident. But I then went to the liquor store and I picked out three other wines, not knowing anything about them, thinking maybe they would be a good jelly and went home and made them up and took them to the farmer's market. And here we are today. Well, wow. And how long ago was that? Uh, nine years. Nine years. Okay. Yeah. And you're still going strong. <laughs> I am. That- <laughs> those those first four flavors are still on our lineup today. And one of them is our top seller. And and what are those first four flavors? Tell us. Sangria, Red Zinfandel, White Zinfandel, and Blackberry Merlot. Oh, wonderful. So so you have some rich and hearty, and then you also have some sweet in there. So that, that right. sounds like a, a very nice uh, cross. Now, do you, tell us about you know, how do you figure out, I mean, I know you just said you kind of didn't know anything about wine. You went to the shop, you picked out some things and, and lo and behold, it stuck. Uh, so you <laughs> must, you must have a knack for it. Um, but, um, how do you develop these flavors? You know, do, do you experiment? You know, what is, what is that process like? <laughs> I do experiment. Most of them come from just maybe a flavor combination I've come up with that I want to that I think would be good. And so I try it and I usually have to tweak it once or twice. Um, It also comes from customer request. Um, 
For instance, I we do the Kansas State Fair. We're vendors there. Uh-huh. And I had a lot of requests for both a pepper jelly and then also with one that had Kansas in the name. And so after some thought, and I was bouncing ideas off of the lady that was working with me that day, and I decided to mix wine and beer together, which I had never heard of, and then add jalapenos, and our Kansas tornado was born. That and sounds like quite a tornado in your mouth. I got to be honest. I'm not really, <laughs> I have to taste that to understand what that actually would be right. like. Right. Yes. And it's become very popular. It's one of our top sellers. It's amazing over cream cheese. But anyway, I really just get these ideas in my head and go into the kitchen and start putting them together. And it comes fairly easy to me, the experimental part of it. And uh-huh. I really enjoy that part of it. Usually, how long does it take start to finish to, um, you know, from the experimental phase, you know, that kind of that, that spark in, in your head of an idea <laughs> of flavors coming together to finish product that you, you bring out to market? Actually, usually just a couple of days. I really experiment one day and then I like to kind of think about it overnight and bounce bounce the flavor off of, you know, my family and a few friends. And then I land on one and run with it. Wow. I, you <laughs> you definitely have a special talent that I'm sure many others would love to have, you know, that spent all kinds of time in a test kitchen and, <laughs> you know, and that sort of thing. Uh, now, you know, I know you're based in Kansas. And um, I know that, you know, from my experience in Ohio, at least, and that's that's where I'm from, we have wine country here as well. People typically don't realize that wine gets made in the Midwest, and and I think similarly for Kansas as well. Um, But we have different rules and laws on on how products, particularly products with alcohol in them, have to go to market. Um, What's what's the process like in Kansas? Because I I think it's a little bit different than than other states I've heard about. Um, With the jelly being a food product, it's not regulated by the alcohol industry. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot to it in Kansas to sell a product at the farmer's market or a vintage show or a trade show type of um, situation. You do not have to be licensed or have a certified kitchen. Um, You only have to do that if you're going to put your product in retail stores. Right. So now I did send all of my jellies into K-State, Kansas State University, to be tested. And... um, they, they all came back fine. They all came back great. So really not a lot to getting it actually out on the market as far as just selling it at events and such. Well, that's great, though, that you you have that opportunity to send it to the lab at Kansas State, because I know I don't think a lot of states have that capacity or, or, or do that service. So I, I found that kind of interesting uh, when when you had mentioned it to me previously right. off air. And, and so I thought it was kind of, I always like to you know, sort of pull the curtain back a, a little bit as well when we talk to entrepreneurs that, you know, it's about a good idea, but then there's those practicalities as well that, that sometimes people forget about. Right. And I I was really nervous when I sent it in because I had never seen wine jelly. I really wasn't familiar with <clears throat> how to deal with the alcohol part of it or what that would entail. So I was really nervous about what the results were going to be and what they told me. And I was just so pleased when I got my results and they're like, you are good to go. And so... We ran That's with awesome. it then. That's fantastic. Now, so you've been doing this for nine years. You mentioned farmers markets and and trade shows, and of course the Kansas State Fair. But mm-hmm. where where else? You know, where have you sold your product? You know, how do you usually get this product into the hands and, and more importantly mouths of of consumers? 
<laughs> um, before COVID, I basically traveled the country and sold at um, trade shows, vintage markets, etc. Um, vintage markets are my favorite. That seems to be kind of my target market. Um, I went as far as Las Vegas. I've been to Phoenix, Albuquerque, wow. Waco, Texas, Wyoming, Colorado, Nebraska, South Dakota, see Missouri, Arkansas. Anyway, I was on the road basically every week, um, shows virtually every weekend of the year, you know, minus a few. But I ended up hiring a lady to make jelly for me while I was gone. And I would be out on the road and I would pop back in town for two or three days and reload and go back out. Now, when COVID hit, that changed drastically. Of course. Um, Normally having a show virtually every weekend, they all canceled since March other than two. So we've always had an online presence, um, always had a website, but we've really had to pivot and put more into that um, and really focus on the online. We can't get out to sell it to the individual. And that really selling it person to person is mm-hmm. my absolute favorite. Um, when you see their response and you you know when they try it and it comes across as if you're not familiar with it as a strange concept, a strange right. idea. And so really people being able to be there and sample it is really what sells it. And I really miss the fact, you know, that one-on-one with customers. Oh, I bet. I bet. And and um, you're so passionate about the pro- product, so knowledgeable about it. Uh, and you're right. I mean, it is something that you do have to taste, as I said, with the Texas or the Kansas tornado. Like that definitely, right. I feel like that's something that you really have to taste to, to understand what it is. Now, I am familiar with wine jelly, like I said, because... In Ohio, we like it's the only time I've ever heard about people making wine jelly, and it's hard to find, and sometimes it's seasonal, and they're really sort of very small, you know, uh, small batch makers. And so I went when I decided I wanted to focus on you know different types of um, you know booze production, so to speak, in the Midwest. I also wanted to do that sort of value added product. And I went hunting for somebody that did wine jelly in it. I, I'm so happy that I found you because you really are, you know, in a very small class of people doing something very unique. Um, and and I'm sure that that post COVID, um, you know, things things will pick back up at those at those uh, shows and fairs and festivals across the country. In the meantime, though, um, you know, where uh, you said you're online, where can our listeners find your jelly online? Do, do you ship nationwide? I do ship nationwide. All they have to do is go to uncorkedwinejelly.com. So uncorkedwinejelly.com, that, and uh, you can get some really interesting flavors uh, all the way from Kansas. What do you have on there right now? What are your interesting flavors that you're selling outside of the, probably the typical four? We have the typical four. Um, we also carry a line of wine and or beer and whiskey jelly. We oh, have tell a, us about that. <laughs> we have a Pell jelly. Um, that's made with Pell beer and also a cherry wheat beer. Ooh, yum. Yeah. And they're very different, the two of them. The Pell is going to be more like a traditional beer flavor. Sure. The cherry wheat, of course, the flavor or the fruit flavors added in there also. We have a fireball. Oh, that, well, I could see the cinnamon. Right. We mix it with apple beer also. And so oh. you've got a really nice cinnamon apple jelly with that. Um, we have our newest one is a Jack and Coke. And everyone that has tried it is like, that is dead on, tastes like a Jack and Coke drink. Oh, so, wow. Now, what would you put, what, you know, give give the listeners some idea of how you would pair these things. You talked about the 
tornado jelly with cream cheese. You right. just gave us some really interesting flavors like Fireball. How would you serve that? What would you put that on? That is also good on cream cheese, but my favorite way is with biscuits. And it just oh. really, yeah, it just really tastes good with the biscuits. And the Jack and Coke, amazingly, is good on waffles. <laughs> we like to put all our jellies on our pancakes and waffles, but there's something about that real strong um, base flavor of the Jack and Coke that is amazing with waffles. I would have so. never thought of that. <laughs> Um, my last question being to you, you know, I always want to know, where do people source their ingredients? I know you work with, you know, liquor stores and whatnot, but do you get some of the other you know, um, uh, specialty beers like apple beer? Do you focus on Kansas, the Midwest, or do you just get from all over? We we buy from the liquor store locally. Um, and so really, it's not necessarily Kansas-made wine or beer. So it is still classified as a Kansas-made product since we do a manufactured in Kansas. Of course. Well, you definitely Mm -hmm. are manufactured in Kansas and uh, made with passion in Kansas as well. And um, I definitely want to check this stuff out. It sounds incredible. And I'm so glad that we've been able to share your story and and your product from uh, Uncorked Wine with our audience. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community. Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.